Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Levis, Fund Manager of the MNG Global Macro Bond, which is one of II's Super 60 funds. Jim was appointed Chief Investment Officer of MNG Public Fixed Income in February 2020, heading a team that invests across investment grade and high yield credit government debt and emerging markets, uh, emerging markets debt. He joined MNG in 1997 after five years at the Bank of England, where he worked as a gilt market analyst and dealer. As well as heading up the team, Jim is manager and co-manager of a range of fixed income funds domiciled in London and Luxembourg. So first of all, a very warm welcome to you, Jim, and thanks for sparing us some of your time. Great to be on. Perhaps we could start, if you could uh, talk us through the actual bond itself, um, what, what it's trying to achieve, what your objectives are, investment style, that kind of thing. Okay, well, we launched the Global Macro Bond Fund back in 1999 to be a fund that could invest across the full range of bond funds. So this is MNG's most flexible bond fund in that I can look at the markets, look at the economic outlook, and determine whether I think it's time to be in government bonds, like gilts issued by the UK government, for instance, or across the pond in America or Japan, uh, or whether I want to be in credit, which are corporate bonds, or even down in the riskier type of fixed income instruments like high yield, and as you mentioned, emerging markets, uh, an increasingly attractive asset class. So the fund invests across the full range of bonds, but also can invest in currencies as well. So when you buy this fund, you bear in mind that the fund is generally going to be pointing away from the pound sterling. So that will form a, a significant part of the returns of the portfolio. And generally, that's been a, a decent source of adding value as well. Has that been uh, partly driven by the, I know we've had a bit of a run on sterling recently with hopes that Brexit might actually come out better than expected. But obviously over the last year, 18 months, maybe even going back to 2016, sterling has been fairly weak. Is that uh, something that's played uh, into, into favour? Yeah, that's definitely been a great help. You know, in 2016, the fund was pointing entirely away from sterling. And then obviously we had the Brexit shock and ongoing economic periods of uncertainty since then, including COVID and no deal Brexit worries. As you mentioned, in recent months, um, there has been a bit of a bounce in sterling. It's actually doing okay at the moment, but, but it has been helpful for the portfolio investing in things like US dollars, Japanese yen, euros and elsewhere in the world over the past few years. At the moment, sterling looks roughly fair value in, in our minds. So uh, as a result of this rally, it's taken away a lot of the kind of undervaluation that we'd seen. Now it looks about right on various measures of valuation. So given that backdrop and the, and the flexibility you mentioned that you have, how's your current sort of asset and geographical allocation looking? Yeah, so at the moment we have around about 15% of the fund in sterling assets. Corporate bonds, you, you probably know, during the first wave of the COVID panic, you know, from March, April, May, got absolutely destroyed by markets. You know, we saw credit spreads widen. That's the kind of premium over a gilt that a company needs to pay in order to borrow. And so at that time, we went aggressively into corporate bonds and high yield bonds because the valuations became kind of once in a lifetime valuations for corporate bonds and high yield. I would say now, 
we've started reducing that exposure to corporate bonds quite substantially, simply on a valuation basis. Um, we don't worry about defaults greatly, partly because governments like the UK government or, or even the Federal Reserve or the ECB in Europe have kind of said, we're going to stand behind companies. We don't want companies going bust in this environment. So we don't worry so much about defaults going up, but certainly the valuations there don't look as attractive as they are. So at the moment, a bit more focused on less risky government bonds. But the one thing we have done quite aggressively in the past couple of months is buy emerging market bonds. These are bonds issued by Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, Asia, Asian countries, for instance, like Taiwan. So we've been buying those a bit more aggressively because the yields on emerging markets tend to be six, seven, eight percent compared to boring old gilt yields of 0.5%. So we're looking for opportunities around the world in, in countries where we have confidence that they're going to pay us back. Exactly. Historically, a couple of the countries that you mentioned there, of course, have, have uh, had some element of default to it. Presumably that's something that you're very much bearing in mind when you're even considering them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the news at the moment is Zambia in, in Africa, and that's going through a default process at the moment. So it's something you have to be very careful about. And that's why you need credit analysts and emerging market analysts to go and cherry pick the countries where you're confident you're going to get your money back. Or, you know, you, you might take um, some additional risk on for ones you're less sure of. But, you, you know, you need to be compensated by much higher yields in, in more risky countries. So it's part of that investment process, picking the winners and the losers in emerging markets, just as it would be for a stock picker and an equity fund. So I guess in, in terms of that uh, kind of attitude to risk, have you got any preference between what we used to call short, medium and long-term dating, for example, in terms of how long the debt has got until it's, uh, until it's actually repaid? Yeah, we, we do a bit. And I think the biggest driver of that is that, as, as we all know, and Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, was standing up this week talking about how much the UK government is going to have to borrow over the next few years. And it's something like half a trillion pounds, not quite, but nearly half a trillion pounds next year. Whereas when I was at the Bank of England, as you mentioned earlier, we were panicking that we had to issue 50 billion pounds worth of gilts one year you know we think oh my god who's going to buy those but now it's uh you know substantially higher than that so there is a bit of a worry that markets might at some point say these are too many gilts these are too many treasuries or too many bunds in germany for us to be able to buy and at that point yields might start to rise and historically it's been those longer dated gilts or longer dated treasuries that have underperformed because you know, you might know you'll get your money back in two or three years time, but 50 years or 100 years time might default risk have gone up by then. So I think we prefer the shorter end than the longer end. And that means we're slightly skewed towards those maturities rather than the very long dated debt. Now, you mentioned uh, potentially a, a reducing exposure to some corporate bonds that, that you've seen over recent months. What were or even of those remain, what are the top holdings? What are the sort of companies that you've been looking at as, as part of that corporate bond uh, issuance within your portfolio? Well, as I said, when, when the coronavirus crisis hit in March, there was an initial sell-off in, in corporate bonds and that left valuations really attractive. And it also meant that the, the uncertainty at the time meant that lots of 
companies decided to issue lots of debt just to make sure they'd have enough money to get them through the next two years of uncertainty. And that threw up lots of opportunities. And, you know, I think you can break corporates down into financials, which are the kind of bank bonds issued by Barclays or JP Morgan in America. Then there are utility companies, you know, your, your kind of power companies, water companies, etc. And then they're just tradi- traditional corporates. And I think the, the, the best value we found were not in the utilities. And one of the reasons for that is that, as you know, central banks went and supported corporate bond markets and they aggressively bought those kind of utility bonds to take those valuations less attractively priced for our liking. And the same is true as some of the corporates, but we do like lower rated corporate bonds. So bonds that are triple B rated, for instance, they tend to have a higher spread, a higher yield. And so for a fund like us, uh, that makes them more attractive. And we like financials. And the reason we like financials is that the Bank of England decided not to buy financial bonds as part of its quantitative easing program. And that meant that their yield stayed higher than everyone else's so they remained more attractive to us so there's a skew in this portfolio towards financial bonds some corporates but not so many of the utility companies so given all those moving parts let alone the challenges that 2020 uh, has thrown us so far on it and it's not over yet um how has your uh, fund actually been holding up it's had a good year so far i think that we had our best time for the fund obviously the worst time for us as individuals, but during those couple of months in March and April, because we came into 2020 thinking, you know, if you remember back to this time last year, we'd seen government bond yields start to rise. Everyone's quite optimistic about the world, that things were going to be great, that the US was growing quite strongly. So US government bond yields in 2019 had started to rise towards the end of the year. Then we started hearing the first noises about coronavirus. And so throughout January, February and March, I'd been starting to add some of these very defensive government bonds back into my portfolio. And I'd taken my corporate bond investments down to to virtually nothing. And that meant as we came into the peak of coronavirus and the fears, and and we all remember those horrible days in financial markets in, in Q1 and Q2, it meant that we were we had lots and lots of ammunition to buy what we saw as extremely cheap assets. And so, you know, we had a tremendously strong first half of, uh, of this year. So, um, yeah, bad news for, for, for markets in general. But I'd say if you look back at the history of the Global Macro Bond Fund, we do tend to do quite well when everybody is fearful, bearish and and markets are selling off. And I think that that for me makes it a fund that sits quite well as a diversifier because most people buy funds that they want to do well in good times and uh, you know are looking for beta to stop markets you know you know they want to make lots of money when things at times are great. I think I've got a bit more of a bearish head in my, on my body, Richard, and uh, so as a result of that, it tends to be quite a defensive fund that does well at times when the global economy has some rough patches. Sure. And it it now looks as though, of course, we may get the transition to a new president in the States to happen in a rather less troubling manner than had been uh, first fear. And obviously, something that hasn't been talked about so much more recently is the fractious 
China-US relationship, which will no doubt resume in the new year. And of course, we've got the small matter of the UK's exit from the EU imminently, um, with or without a deal. So as you're currently looking at the world and obviously um, putting to 20, 2020 to one side, what, what's your kind of outlook from here? When we had the, the election, we came into that election with quite high expectations that Joe Biden would win the presidency, which he has done, that he would win the House of Representatives, which he has done, albeit not as convincingly as he'd hoped to have done, and that he would take the Senate. And that's what's called the blue wave. You know, Democrats would have a clean sweep and that would allow them to do tons of fiscal spending. They'd, they'd borrow trillions of dollars in the marketplace and redistribute that wealth to lower income families because remember in America lower income families have had a really rough time for probably three decades now they've really seen their incomes stagnate and he wants to readdress that so we thought that might be the trend for next year but that would mean uh, perhaps higher bond yields because of more government bond issuance perhaps our higher inflation as well and lower equity markets but when we got the election result we found that he hadn't won the senate and that means that what he can do, what Biden can do, is, is very much constrained uh, compared to market fears, in a way. So I think that there is still a way he can win the Senate. And people should be aware that there are two uh, Georgia Senate seats come up for grabs in January. Georgia is a Republican state generally, although uh, not in the presidential race this time round. And there is a chance that the Senate does go with Biden and he does get that clean sweep, the blue wave, in which case I think the equity markets will probably come lower on the back of that because Biden will put taxes up for companies and high net worth individuals. But, you know, that's still not the core scenario. So I think Biden is somewhat constrained and that means that that should be relatively market friendly for the next couple of years at least. China is one where Biden was one of the people who, with Obama, sort of made this peace with China and opened up free trade. I think he's rolled back on that a little bit. So don't expect an immediate thawing of uh, the relationship because Biden will see that actually Trump may have been right about some of that. Trump, you know, the, the average American worker probably has felt some pain by China producing cheaper goods than are, than are made in America. And I think Biden will probably see the writing on the wall if he decided to embrace China too closely once again. So I think there'll still be some tensions there that won't go away. And finally, you mentioned Brexit. We're, um, what are we, five weeks away? Um, we don't have any sort of a deal here. <laughs> For me, the most interesting part of uh, Rishi Sunak's spending review was really lots of mentions about COVID and the damage that that's going to do to the economy. But actually, if you look at the Office of Budgetary Responsibility, who produced the kind of forecast scenarios for what happens to borrowing and growth in the UK, the huge amount of damage that's going to be done by Brexit and in particular, a no deal Brexit. And to have these two things together, COVID and a no deal Brexit, I, I think even if you're completely uh, partisan politically, if we just take, take politics and whether you're a, a Brexit supporter or not out of the equation, I don't think it's a good idea to have uh, a no deal Brexit at the same time as COVID. For me, some sort of another, another, I might be kicking the can down the road, but if we just get COVID out of the way first before we, uh, before we start putting borders up and so forth, that would probably be a good result for the UK. 
who knows whether that will happen, but it seems more likely we drop out without a deal. Well, let's stick to the hopeful note. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for, but fascinating insights nonetheless. That was uh, Jim Levis, fund manager of the MNG Global Macro Bond. And thank you also for listening. Do join us next time for another interactive investor podcast. <laughs>